0: Turning your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 13. We'll finish up this chapter today. Matthew 13. We'll look this morning to verses 53 to 58, the last paragraph of this chapter. In every state in the U.S. seems to have some popular slogan that uh, they use to define themselves. So Washington calls itself the Evergreen State and uh, Montana calls itself Big Sky Country. But one of the most interesting mottos is what you find on license plates in Missouri. They are the show me state. Missourians take pride in being doubters and these days many people not from Missouri share their outlook I suspect. But in such a time as this, when we often ought to be slow to believe everything we hear, we also need to be careful not to cross the line from doubting that's healthy into skepticism that refuses to believe. And that's what our text is about this morning. Let me read it. Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and, and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them only in his hometown, in his own house, Is a prophet without honor, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He suggests two simple truths that we have here, two points. First is this don't stumble over the lowliness of Jesus. Don't stumble over the lowliness of Jesus. We love rags-to-riches stories. Stories of people born in poverty with few, if any, uh, opportunities who nonetheless beat the odds and rise from the ghetto and become great successes. We love those stories. Well, Jesus' life is not a rags-to-riches story. It's just the opposite. It's a story of God descending into our fallen humanity. But rather than admiring such... Holy condescension, some hated him for it that 's what we see in this account of Jesus going home to Nazareth. They stumbled over his lowliness. So what was it that offended the people of Nazareth? Well, it was not his teaching everywhere he went, people were amazed at his teaching as he, he, they said he taught with one as one with authority, not like the scribes and, and teachers of the law that just uh, quoted the experts. And even when Jesus visited Nazareth earlier, Luke reported that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that flowed from his lips. And even down in verse 54, when Jesus began teaching, they asked, where did this man get this wisdom? Today people are like that too. They think well of Jesus' teaching. All kinds of people who don't believe in Jesus think, well, the teaching of Jesus is something to pay attention to. So that wasn't it. But what was offensive to the people in Nazareth? Well, it's not his teaching, but neither was it his miraculous works. You may recall that Jesus' very first miracle was uh, changing water to wine at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. That's just 10 miles up the road from Nazareth. Likely people from Nazareth were at that wedding. Certainly they heard about it. They knew about it. In fact, up to this point, virtually all of Jesus' miracles have been done in the region of Galilee, which is a fairly small area, and Nazareth is one of the small towns. Jesus was widely known throughout that whole area. In fact, in verse 54, the people of Nazareth accepted the validity of Jesus' miracles, saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? That's not what was offensive to them, the fact that he did miracles. So what was so offensive to them? Well, it was Jesus' familiarity that they stumbled over. Verse 55, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? They go on to name his four brothers and talk about his sisters. They knew him there. He grew up there. For as verse 57 makes clear, it was his hometown. But remember what Nathan, Nathaniel said when he met Jesus of Nazareth? He said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently the people of Nazareth thought the same way. So all they could see in this hometown boy, Jesus, was lowliness and commonness. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He could not be anyone special. He's just one of them and they stumbled over his lowliness. Oh, but the lowliness of Jesus was about to get even more profound than anything they saw. You see, Jesus did not begin his life in obscurity and then rise to popularity. No, it's just the opposite. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink describes the humiliation of Jesus. Let me read what he says. Jesus descended always lower and deeper and more intimately into our fellowship. The way down was marked by tears or steps, conception, birth, lowly life in Nazareth, baptism and temptation, opposition, disparagement, Persecution, agony in Gethsemane, condemnation before Caiaphas and Pilate, crucifixion, death, and burial. The way led ever further down from his home with the Father, and it led ever nearer, To us in the fellowship of our sin and our death, until finally, in the deepest depths of his suffering, he gave utterance to the anxious complaint about being forsaken by God. And only then could he give utterance to the cry of victory it is finished. But Jesus' lowly identification with us sinners was part of the genius of God's saving plan for us, which is unfolded throughout the scriptures. We hear it in uh, Hebrews 2. Since the children were flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery, that he might make atonement for the sins of people. That's why he became human flesh. That explanation continues in 2 Corinthians 5. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we in him might be righteous before God. But this plan for the son's condescension was ultimately the plan for his exaltation in that familiar passage in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That majestic truth of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ was being lived out that day when Jesus visited Nazareth. It was exactly that great truth, at least a little piece of it, that they saw in his humiliation that the people of Nazareth rejected. They stumbled over the lowliness, the humiliation of Jesus. They refused to welcome the very one who came to save them. And it's exactly that same truth that people continue to reject to this day. The Apostle Paul explains that the message of the cross, and that's what the humiliation of Christ is about, all the way to the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, we're a strange lot, we humans. We like it when some powerful leader shows up on our workplace and pretends to be interested in what we're doing for a few moments. We think that's great. But somehow we do not want a God who gets his hands dirty and actually knows us like we are where we live. We're more comfortable with a God who stays aloof in heaven as some mystical other while we live undisturbed in our pathetic little real world. But that's not how God is. It's not what Jesus has done. He humbled himself to walk in our shoes, to show us the Father, but demands that our response be commitment to him. He came to provide salvation by the ugly mess of a tortured God-man hanging and dying on a cross, put there by our guilt and our rejection. That kind of salvation is repugnant to us. It condemns us before it saves us. It is messy. It is unfair for our sophistication. It is too unlike what other people believe, where they emphasize the innate, wonderful goodness of everyone and the promise of mankind's progress toward a great future. But the Scriptures make clear that there is no salvation. There is no future apart from this Jesus, humiliated, And now exalted. Too often, it is precisely this lowly Jesus that we just will not have. We may marvel at his teaching and wonder about his miracles. But who does he think he is? Or do not stumble over the lowliness of Jesus. That's the first truth. Why not? That brings us to the second truth. Because God rejects the skeptic. God rejects the skeptic. Kids, if you're taking notes, let me explain. Our text is not saying that God rejects people who seek him or the people who require, who inquire about him, people who doubt what they hear. But a skeptic is more than one who doubts and struggles to know the truth. A skeptic skeptic is someone who refuses to believe no matter what the evidence, specifically if we're talking about things related to God. That's what happened in Nazareth. They didn't just have doubts and confusion. They refused to believe. Look again at verse 58. Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief, their refusal to believe. It doesn't actually sound so bad, does it? Lightning didn't strike them when they refused to believe in Jesus. He just quit doing miracles, left them alone. You see, when we reject Jesus and he appears to go away, we may take some comfort in that. We may think we've pulled it off. We've done it our way. In fact, we may find some satisfaction in our disdain for those who so foolishly persist in that fanaticism about Jesus. But all that's based on an erroneous belief that we're in the driver's seat. And we're doing it our way. But that's not what this text is about. Some notion that we're calling the shots. The truth is God can do anything he pleases But he will not perform miracles to satisfy some skeptic's curiosity. He will not. So the silence, when God stops making himself known, is a terrifying silence. It's not an easing of the pressure from God. It's a sign that God is rejecting the unbeliever. As Romans 1 says it time after time, when they would not honor God, he gave them over to their sinful desires. Later, he gave them over to their shameful lust. And again, he gave them over to their depraved mind. Those who said to God, leave me alone, did exactly what they asked for and more. God left them alone to let the normal, destructive power of their sinful heart work itself out in their life in every kind of depravity. Some in our day will say, I can live with that. That's exactly what I want. Pleasure-seeking to the ultimate degree. God may call it giving me over to sin. I call it having fun. But God's rejection of the faithless doesn't stop there, folks. As we've seen in the parables, the day of judgment is coming. The weeds will be separated from the wheat. The bad fish will be separated from the good fish. That is judgment day when God, with irreversible finality, rejects those who refuse to follow Christ. Jesus himself describes it in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil dealers. On that day, claims of Christian belief and church attendance will not be enough. Having done many works in Christ's name will not be enough. Only those who know Jesus by faith and do his will will stand on the day of judgment. All others God will finally and forever reject with these most terrifying words. Depart from me. I never knew you. God rejects the skeptic. What a poignant little passage before us this morning. Jesus returned to his hometown in Nazareth. You know, we love scenes of homecoming heroes. Soldiers coming home. Ball teams coming home. Family members long separated coming home for the holidays. Those are some of the sweetest moments we have in human life. So imagine Jesus returning home after months of travel and teaching, a hero to many who were beginning to believe could this be the Messiah? For he is a man of wisdom, clothed with love and compassion. He healed the sick whenever he went, he showed compassion to the crowds who had been abused by their leaders, he forgave undeserving sinners, he even received those. With, with faltering faith, remember the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Surely the people among whom he had grown up would be excited to see him again. No. His humility did not impress them, indeed, it backfired. Who did he think he was? Some great teacher, a miracle worker? All oh, they knew better he's just the carpenter's kid. We know his family. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. And they took offense at him. They stumbled over his humility. What a sad event it turned out to be. But God's response to the people of Nazareth was sadder still. Oh, lightning did not strike from heaven. A plague did not consume the town. No, nothing happened. No harsh words from Jesus. No fire and brimstone sermons. But most tellingly, there were no mighty works done there. For you see, God has great compassion and great patience. But he rejects skeptics who see and know but refuse to believe. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there's a skeptic inside of every one of us, probably. Have mercy on us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Thank you, Lord, for your great plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering such great humiliation that you might be exalted and be Lord of all. May we follow you faithfully no matter what the cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.